From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. It really, it did, really revolves around the environmental justice issues and these operations propping up in these, these communities of color, like Sherry said, that don't really have a lot of political clout, but these folks have fought back. This week on the show, we talk with Sherry Duggar and Craig Watts with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. We talk about the work they're doing to support people living in rural communities, dealing with the consequences of factory farming operations located in their neighborhoods. And we talk about the new documentary on the topic, The Smell of Money. That conversation's just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. The EPA estimates that agriculture accounted for more than 11% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in 2020. Globally, food systems contribute closer to one-third of the total, with livestock accounting for roughly half of those emissions from farms. It's clear that how we produce food on the planet needs to change. And nowhere is it more obvious than in the front yard of a pink house on a country road in eastern North Carolina. That pink house belongs to Elsie Herring. Her grandfather survived slavery and purchased the land, and it's been in the family ever since. Elsie's house is situated down the road from a confined animal feeding operation, a CAFO, which houses thousands of hogs in front of a giant rose-colored lagoon filled with their waste. That waste, untreated, gets sprayed on the field next to Elsie's house. Sometimes the spray drifts into her yard, onto her clothes hanging on the line, and even into her house. It's pretty disgusting, and the stench in the air is constant. Sometimes when the unpleasant, often horrifying aspects of our food system come up in conversation, I hear people talk about their personal consumer choices. That's why I don't eat meat, they say, or that's why I buy food from local farmers. And I get it. That's my first response too. But more and more, it's becoming clear that vote with your dollar solutions aren't enough. Or maybe it's just that they take too long. When it comes to action on climate change, we're running out of time. A systems approach is needed to address these larger challenges. That's why I was excited to have the chance to talk with our guests today. I am Sherry Duggar, and I'm the executive director with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. I'm Craig Watts. I am field director of operations for the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. Socially Responsible Agriculture Project is a national nonprofit organization. We all work remote all over the country. We work with communities to protect themselves from incoming or expanding concentrated animal feeding operations or factory farms, as some people might know them. So the operations where animals are confined inside of buildings to be raised for food and um, sometimes thousands or millions of animals in, in buildings. So it's it's completely focused on the confined animal Eating. Feeding, feeding operation. Yeah, they're it's, called CAFOs. We 
mostly work with communities who are facing incoming or expanding operations, factory farms. But we also have been getting a lot of requests lately from from people who are experiencing water pollution issues, odors, that sort of thing from other types of industrial agriculture operations like slaughterhouses. They have these buildings called methane digesters, which help to convert the manure that's produced from these CAFOs into a a gas used for energy. So there's a lot of pollution involved in all of those different types of operations, and we're seeing a lot of increase in requests from communities experiencing harms from some of those other types of operations. We work mostly with communities who who are facing these animal harms from animal operations. I would like to know a little bit about each of you and how you got into this kind of work. We could start with you, Craig. Sure. I actually was a contract farmer who raised animals in these CAFOs. I did that for 23 and a half years. Figured out very early on that I was basically a uh, serf with a mortgage, an indentured servant on my own property because uh, they call us independent contractors, but that's a joke. They tell us what to do, dictate the terms. And... You know, I just I, I just got really disillusioned with the uh, with the whole system, the operations specifically around the farmers is how they, they were basically treated as an expendable resource. But they'll pull the farmer out as a shield, you know, to to, to prop up the energy saying, look, we're great for the American farmer when, you know, we, we were we were struggling. And then I guess just at some point in time, it was a cumulative effect of a lot of little things. I just felt like at the end of the day, the consumer was my boss. I had a contract with the chicken company, but at the end of the day, the consumer was my boss. And what I was seeing presented on labels and on the advertising you see on TV was so far removed from what I saw every day that I felt like, you know, I was going to give the consumers, you know, a real shot at what, what this looks like every day when I come to work. It's not the white picket fence. It's not the nice red barn. It's not mom and pa kettle holding the pitchfork anymore. What we do is it, we basically raise we raise chickens in basically warehouses. And so it, it was, it's a long story, but I, I actually had a, an animal advocate group come in and, and film. And so we put it on YouTube, and the New York Times picked it up. It got up on the Reddit board. I think in 24 hours, there was a million views. And so people got really upset, and which is, was the plan. I'm, I'm glad they did. And I think uh, I, I, I want to say that we changed the way the industry does business a little bit, but I'm not sure we really did. I think we put their PR people, you know, <laughs> doing double time. So, uh, yeah, uh, but that that's kind of how I got into this work. And, and the, the lady that works with the Social Responsible Agriculture Project and I had been friends for about 10 years. And I, I exited my contract in 2016, and she knew that I was, you know, out there. I didn't have Plan B. If you get out of it, I recommend a Plan B. But uh, she said, we need, we're looking for some people. And so SRAP brought me on as a consultant. I, wasn't exa- I didn't exactly fit into what they were doing. But they saw merit in what I was doing and so got involved with them and enjoyed it. And then Sherry came on a couple of years later and moved me on staff, and that's that's how I got here. You said you felt like you were a, a serf on your own land. Like what? I, a lot of people don't necessarily understand how contract farming works. Well, the way the contract poultry works is um, basically the company owns the birds and the company owns the feed. The farmer supplies the land. He goes out and borrows the money. He, it was just... In my case, it's about a half a million dollars. Now it's millions of dollars. And they build the, the, the buildings to these integrator specs. And a lot of times in those areas, there's only like one, maybe two integrators that you can choose from. So it's not like if you're working at Sears and you don't like it and you want to go get a job at Lowe's, it doesn't work that way. Quick note, an integrator is the company that the farmer has the contract with. You're half a million dollars in and 
debt makes men very pliable, and you do things that maybe aren't in your best interest, but you do it because you got your home and your farm mortgaged, and you know I had kids, and uh, so uh, that that was just it's, it's a lot of people get up every day going to work to jobs they hate. It's no fun, but a lot of us do it. So uh, I had a picture of my kids, and every time I'd walk in the, the, the in the houses, I would tap it, and that kind of remind me why I was there. But uh, you know, it, it just I didn't. Uh, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have got out earlier and started life over at forty, but I was fifty when I started life over. But that's water under the bridge, and um, it's a lot better being on the advocacy side of it and, and actually helping people than than participating in something that's so um, just bad for the communities, the animals, the farmers, you name it. There's nothing positive about it. So when he signs on with, say, Tyson or Purdue or one of these chicken companies, what happens is this farmer goes into debt, as Craig mentioned, and then they actually have – the farmer takes on the risk. They take on the risk of the debt. They take on the risk of the manure because they have to manage all of the waste that comes out of these animals, which can either look like a, a football field-sized manure lagoon if we're talking about hogs. So they have to have enough space on their land where they're going to put – essentially all of the waste that comes from these millions of animals or thousands of animals, hundreds of thousands of animals into one area. And then that's got to be dealt with, either sprayed onto fields, on corn and soybean fields, et cetera. So all of these problems essentially are laid on the farmer, whereas the the birds themselves are owned by the Tyson or Purdue or whatever these these chicken companies are. They dictate to the farmer how much medicine to give them, how much feed they can give them, et cetera. Basically, Craig in that situation was a babysitter. Is that correct? A chicken daycare, yeah. A chicken daycare. And so, but he's taking on all of that risk for his family, you know, and, and dealing with if there's a pollution incident, it's on him and the corporation stays protected. Mm-hmm. There was an uh, episode of John Oliver back in 2015, and in his own unique way, he did a very good job at laying out the issues with contract farmers, and he put it like this. He said, everything that makes money, the company owns. Everything that costs money, the farmer owns. That, that was about as good an explanation as I've ever, you know, just for in layman's terms, right? I definitely want to follow up with <laughs> some of that, but I want to ask you again, um, Sherry, a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. A very long time ago, I went to school here at IU, and I uh, studied journalism and English and was not involved in advocacy whatsoever, wasn't involved in agriculture and food, etc. After several years moving uh, around the country and, and kind of growing up a little bit, I came back to Indiana to live, was working as an editor. I was editing a publication called Farm Indiana, and through that was really learning about food and agriculture through stories through interviews, editing, and assigning stories about the various farms around around the state, and really became a biased journalist in terms of the types of stories I wanted to write about and support and, and the types of stories I didn't, and really learned what a concentrated animal feeding operation was, what the impact of that kind of a, an operation was on the local communities, how it extracted these larger farms, extract resources and wealth from local communities, they harm um, communities through the pollution that's caused from these operations, the antibiotics that are in the animals, uh, public health is impacted, the environment, climate, et cetera. So as Craig um, kind of alluded to earlier in one of his answers, the, the, the system, the industrial agriculture system, really profits the corporations that are, that are controlling this system and essentially no one else. So what Socially Responsible Agriculture Project does is advocate for a system where everyone can thrive. 
everyone involved in that food system from seed to plate, which is everyone because we all eat. So in the process of learning about these things through stories, I actually was trying to really promote this Farm Indiana publication in a direction around sustainable agriculture and promoting family farms. In 2017, I started working with Indiana Farmers Union, and that really launched me into an advocacy realm instead of in journalism. Left journalism behind in 2016 and started working first learning about the issues in terms of independent family farmers and, and how they're struggling in this really consolidated and concentrated food and agriculture system where where the corporations are keeping control from every aspect of how food is produced and raised in this country. And so eventually found my way to SRAP in April of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. SRAP, again, is the organization that Sherry Duggar leads. Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. And here we are today. So we're actually fighting on behalf of rural communities, trying to protect themselves. Oftentimes these are communities, these operations are cited, you know, next to communities that lack the political power to be able to fight back. They lack the financial resources that they need to be able to fight back. So SRAP really goes to work to help to level the playing field in whatever way we can, either by helping them participate in a permit process, helping them build relationships with regulators, government officials who might be able to actually enforce regulation, any regulation that might be out there for these corporations who are, you know, polluting their communities. We can try to work with them to get them legal assistance. We connect them to other, you know, if we can't ourselves provide the expertise that they need, we'll try to find the the experts to be able to help them in whatever way makes the most sense. So we help them to organize their communities to make sure that they their voices are heard, essentially, and to to help them tell their, sto- their stories and their lived experiences to the people who can possibly make a difference. And you've come to the IU campus for the screening of the documentary film, The Smell of Money. Can you tell us about that film, starting with the title? What does the smell of money refer to? Well, I can give my version of it, which is what I've heard whenever I've seen comments or commentary when people are talking about these operations and the smell that comes from these manure lagoons where all of this waste is held and when they're spraying it on fields, et cetera. Oftentimes in rural communities, the the one thing that they'll say, maybe Craig will have agree with this or not, but the one thing they'll say is, oh, that's what money, that's the smell of money. That's, that's you know, these people are making money and that's what it smells like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go back to the movie Food Inc., the guy's roll, got his windows rolled down and they're driving through, uh, not hogs, but chicken CAFOs, and they're spreading the manure. And that's the first thing he says, it smells like money to me, hence that's where the uh, the title of the movie came from. Yeah. yeah. So that's how they try to justify it, is that this is this is the best way to But it money. is the, in the nose of the beholder. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Doesn't smell like money to everybody. <laughs> Let's listen to a short clip from the film, and then we'll hear more from Craig Watts. The first voice you'll hear is from Dr. Steve Wing from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. What I learned from the Eastern North Carolina residents is that the facilities in their communities were not like my neighbors in Chatham County, North Carolina. They were industrialized facilities that produced hundreds and more often thousands of animals in one location and the concentration resulted in impacts on the neighbors. Dr. Steve Wing, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, he sat down and he took a map of the old slave maps of North Carolina. And he took a map of the hog CAFOs, laid one on top of the other. It's almost a perfect match. That was how we discovered 
that all of these animals were in eastern North Carolina. And that's when the term environmental racism came into play because when you talk about eastern North Carolina, you're talking about predominantly African-American, Native American, Latino communities. Again, people of color. Eastern North Carolina is the dumping grounds for North Carolina. We always say whatever white people don't want in their backyards, come to eastern North Carolina, we'll show it to you because it's here. Uh, the, the filmmaker and the producer are both friends of mine. They started working on this probably before I met them about four years ago. And there was just some incredible activists in rural North Carolina and Duplin County and Sampson County. And Duplin County has the distinction of having more hogs in that county than any other county in the United States of America. Some look at it as a curse. Some look at it as a blessing. Um, I, you know, the, the movie, I think, uh, spells out that probably it's not a blessing. But... Uh, I, I knew Elsie Herring, who the, the film basically revolves around, was her struggle. And, I mean, it starts out in 1999, and she's filming, you know, them spraying the manure right on her house. She had to bring her clothes in from the clothesline, that kind of stuff. And she was just such a strong, strong lady. And then there's uh, – it really it did really revolves around the environmental justice issues and these operations – propping up in these these communities of color like sherry said that don't really have a lot of political clout but these folks have fought back and to me it was i had to kind of reconcile some emotions because i knew elsie and uh part of the film is her funeral which is very and you think well guy elsie fought all this time but then i got to thinking no no this film's going she's still fighting and uh i I met elsie probably five or six years ago and she's like craig she said i i I appreciate you seeing both sides of it. And I said, Miss Elsie, there's only one side of it, and you and I are both on it. That's the right side. So she was real special to me. And then there's a, a couple more folks in the film that I knew, Dr. Steve Wing from Chapel Hill, who did a lot of research for that community. And uh, Don Webb was another individual that I had met like one time, and he was a fighter too. And it's it's just an incredible film. And, and like to me, it was really, it was hard to watch the first time. So, uh, but uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's very, very powerful, yeah. That was Craig Watts, Director of Field Operations for Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, or SRAP. And we're also talking with SRAP Director Sherry Duggar. We'll be back with more from our conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and I'm talking with Craig Watts and Sherry Duggar. We're talking about the documentary, The Smell of Money. The film was directed and produced by Sean Bannon, written and produced by Jamie Berger, and it's being presented by the organization that Sherry and Craig work with, Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, or SRAP. Let's return to our conversation. So there's many disturbing consequences related to the confined animal feeding operations, from animal cruelty, the horrendous working conditions, the safety of the food that's produced, but this film has more of an environmental justice focus to it. It's about the conditions that these operations are creating in the communities where they're situated. So could you talk about some of the problems that the residents encounter when they live close to these facilities? Yes. So I think Craig mentioned some of that. I think oftentimes they're, they're, they're in situations where they actually can't even go out and enjoy, have a, have a quality of life outside of their home. They, they feel trapped inside their homes because of the, the, the smell, uh, the horrendous smell that's, that's out there outside when they go out, you know, outdoors. The spray, they talk in the film about the fact that they have been sprayed 
on with manure, animal manure. I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like. I cannot imagine what mm. that would be like, but they, they live with that reality. And the, the, the thing about these operations is, you know, the corporations try to present their products as having been raised by these, you know, wholesome family farms. Wholesome family farms are also good neighbors, and neighbors don't spray manure on their neighbors. And so that's one of the things that we argue for in, in our work is, is corporations are not good neighbors. The, the industry is not a good neighbor. These are multinational corporations that control the system, and, and they are not in these communities building relationships, building trust, and caring about their neighbors. And so I think that's what we really see in full force in this film is that these are human lives, and they're being impacted every day. They don't have quality of life. Their property value is, is decreased because of these operations being nearby. Oftentimes they feel trapped in these homes. They want to stay there because they're their homes. This is their land. And, and yet, you know, they, if they even wanted to leave, they couldn't because they can't even sell their home. And that's the reality. If, you know, if, if you can't live there because it's, gonna, it's killing you, literally killing you or killing your family, and you have to go, then you just have to walk away from that investment and try to figure out how to pick up the pieces and continue to pay for it or go bankrupt. And, you know, the consolidation of these companies in agriculture I mean, it doesn't look anything like American farming as most people would think. It looks more it's more set up like a Soviet Politburo Central Command and Control decisions that are being made for these residents in Duplin County is being made in a boardroom a thousand miles away. Those people don't care about those folks in Duplin County. And uh, Sherry's exactly right. Uh, neighbors don't do neighbors that way, you know, not good neighbors anyway. So the the environmental justice piece comes in when you consider the the socioeconomic status of the people who are some of the people who are living closest to these operations, right? Like you talked about how a lot of times they're they're sided on purpose. On purpose. That was my mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely on purpose. It's done because they know that they don't have the political clout and the finances, as I said, to be able to fight back. And so that's where we, you know, SRAP at, at its heart is about equity. Like, how can we level the playing field for them? How can we get the resources to them that they need to be able to oppose these operations or at least to educate them in a way? We have several different programs. One is that community support. So if the phone rings or we get an email, somebody finds us through an Internet search or through listening to a podcast or whatever, word of mouth oftentimes is how people find us. They'll come to us and say, this is coming in. I heard about it. I'm scared. I don't know what it what it's going to do to us, but I'm reading things online. It's it's freaking me out. What can I do? And so then we go to work to be able to help them, as I said, organize their community, you know, to educate them about their options, to be able to help them participate in that permitting process, et cetera. But beyond that, we have other programs. One is called the Water Rangers Program. So if there's already an operation there, or if they lose that initial, if if the operation is still going to get built, we can actually train them to use EPA water monitoring techniques to be able to make sure that they get not only a baseline level of what the pollution is, or if there is even pollution in their water, when that operation is built, but then we can help to keep up with them so that they can learn how to monitor the water, make sure that there's not pollution occurring, and if it is, to help them build those relationships with government officials to be able to actually hold those corporations accountable. So that's our second program that we have. A third is a food and farm network program where we're actually working with these community members beyond that initial CAFO site fight, as it were. 
And that's really to get them to advocate for better food and agriculture systems, to get them to advocate for sustainable agriculture, to actually get them to advocate for for a, a system of agriculture that works for these communities rather than extracting the wealth and the, the health of these communities. And then um, our last program is actually one that Craig and I came up with just in the very first conversation that we had together when, when I came to SRAP and I was asking him, what do you want to do here? Or, or I said, what's your dream job, mm-hmm. I think. And I... I was like, no wrong answer. What's your dream job, Craig? And he said, I would really like to be able to manage a team of people like me. And so my response was, well, why can't you? Like, let's try to figure out what that looks like. And so we developed the Contract Grower Transition Program, which is essentially we have these farmers like Craig who are stuck in the system. They literally feel stuck because of the millions of dollars worth of debt, because there's only two integrators or, or chicken companies that are there that they can choose from. They feel like they can't speak up. They feel scared because if they get that contract taken away and they've got a million dollar loan sitting on their property, they're about to lose a multi-generational property that they've had in their, you know, there's uh, Craig and I was just talking on the way over here. Their suicide rates are really high. There's a lot at risk, a lot at stake here in this situation. And so we're talking now about how to design this program so that we can get those people out of that situation, not only to help save their farm to to be able to feed their families etc but also to help them become like Craig to be spokespersons for these communities so that they understand the other side they understand what the people we're not against the growers that are stuck in these contracts we're against the system that doesn't help those contract growers it doesn't help the communities they're living in etc so a lot of times when you hear these stories of big business coming in to a small community and starting something up, a lot of times the communities themselves are split. Some of them are like, well, the community is suffering. We really need this money. But it doesn't sound like there's much in it for the communities with these particular kinds of operations. Or is that is there something that the businesses try to offer as an incentive, like, hey, this is going to be great. It's going to bring jobs or anything like that? Like, oh, yeah, sure. They say that. They don't mentioned the fact that they're revolving door jobs. They don't, the turnover rate's tremendous in a a poultry production facility. I just put in perspective, before poultry came in, we were like probably the second or third poorest county in the state. We have two processing facilities, two particular integrators represented our county just with processing facilities. We have housing for at least three integrators in our county. Well, guess where we are? We're still second, third poorest county in the state. So it's not just rising tide that's going to lift all the ships. It's more like the anchor that went through that keeps you down on the bottom. Silicon Valley is not going to come knocking when you're a chicken county. And once you're a chicken county, you're a chicken county. And there's that, and there's no, uh, you know, I don't, like I said, to me, there's just, there's just nothing positive that, that comes out of that. I mean, what they promise and what they deliver, like I said, image is very far from reality. They extract way more than they ever bring. If I can offer maybe an overview, 30,000 foot view of what we're talking about here. The Indiana Pork Producers Council actually just recently put on social media a post, this was like two weeks ago or something, about how sustainable pork production was in Indiana. They are a a trade organization supporting the industry's side of things. And they were promoting how sustainable it was because it doesn't use a lot of land. uh, Craig could on his poultry, with his poultry operation, it was what, 10 acres? Yeah. of a 300-acre property. that's 10 acres is not a lot of land use for that. Now, if Craig was raising hogs in those buildings, 
the amount of corn and soybeans, 80%, I think, of corn and soybeans in the country is used for feed for these animals that are raised in these operations. So what the pork producers isn't mentioning is the fact that all of our acreage is going to feed the animals in these operations, that all of the chemical inputs that are going onto those fields and farms to grow the commodity, you know, the commodities that are feeding these animals to all the antibiotics that are used in keeping those animals healthy because they're being raised in situations that make them sick. There's, there's so many problems with that system. So, you know, when you think about the economic, supposed economic impacts that that the industry might try to sell with something like this coming into a county. Nowadays, the reason why we have small towns that are basically depleted across America is because we have these 30,000 acre commodity farms and there's like four to a county rather than hundreds of really small farms that are populating and supporting a local community. So I think when you're talking about sustainable agriculture, we really advocate for, we want hundreds of family farms in a community. We don't want somebody who's got, you know, 10,000 acres or 20,000 acres and they're growing corn and soybeans for some, you know, operations that are raising pigs in these confined situations. Yeah, and maybe some of those hundreds of farmers could actually be growing food that people eat people in eat. the community. <laughs> and we're actually um, involved in organizing a summit in D.C. that will take place in February called Food Not Feed. And that's really what that's about is like how do we actually grow food for people because we have a food security issue as well that we haven't talked about. But we need to think about like how to actually grow real food for people rather than growing feed for animals. Because it really is an inefficient exchange of calories. You know, 100 calories of corn might get you, I don't know, 15, 20 calories of pork or whatever. So we could do a lot more with what we have, I think, mm-hmm. a lot better with what we have. I was wondering if you could tell me about some of the health concerns that people have in the communities where these operations are. Yeah, I think Craig mentioned it a little bit with that it's actually featured in the smell of money that we see some of the health impacts. But I, I think um, some of these, not only the neighbors of these operations, but also the farm workers themselves are impacted in various ways. They, they deal with a lot of allergies. They deal with a lot of respiratory problems. They deal with a lot of cancers. There's one of our, our uh, staff members has dealt with communities where everyone in the, in the community has cancer of some sort. There were miscarriages at like, you know, enormous rates. There's, uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know all of the health impacts, but I know that we see them not only in the communities that we work with, but also, you know, it's, there's a lot of, we, we work very closely with Johns Hopkins University Center for a Livable Future. And there's a lot of data that's out there that really speaks to the health impacts of these operations. It's real. And, Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that probably doesn't get publicized as much is the mental health aspect of it. Absolutely. You can't go out in your yard and sit at a picnic table because you're smelling pig manure I mean and you know your property's worthless now and then you try to go to the people who can help you the legislator or whoever and they just turn a blind eye to you I mean it's the, the, the I mean we, we work with these communities every day so I, I know the frustration and I fought the system myself and it's uh, it's a juggernaut and um, it takes its toll certainly the Oxford dictionary defines juggernaut as a huge powerful, and overwhelming force or institution. That sounds like the correct word choice. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. And we'll be back with Craig Watts and Sherry Duggar with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project after we take a short break. Stay with us. 
Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats, and we're talking with Sherry Duggar and Craig Watts about the documentary The Smell of Money and the issues rural communities face when factory farming moves to their area. I asked Craig to tell me the story of the woman in the pink house. The main character in the, main the film character. is 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 Elsie Herring. Elsie. And it just it it, it kind of took us back in time to, to 1999 when she started finally standing up for herself and um and it just kind of follows follows you know the path of time and like here we are in 2022 and nothing's really changed. So did she live somewhere where a CAFO came in or she was trying to fight it before it got there? Uh she Elsie had the property, then the CAFO came in on top of her. So she was there first. I I don't think nobody was prepared for what was going to come, you know. It's okay, you're raising a few hogs. Okay, that sounds good. But then you see these massive industrial operations, like Sherry said, these football fields. I mean, the, the, the waste disposal method is this. The, the hogs are in the barn. They poop through the floor. It goes down a pipe, and it goes into this big hole in the ground outside the house, totally uncovered, untreated. And then when the uh, affluent builds up so much, they got these huge irrigation guns that they pump out and they spray on hay fields. And it's just this mist in the air, and that's what is getting sprayed on the neighbors, untreated. A cesspool, just sewage, and uh, so I don't think nobody really was prepared for that. But the, there is a a, a a good ending, or maybe not an ending to the story, but a good part of the story is in North Carolina, they uh, they actually sued Smithfield, the neighbors did, and there was at least five jury verdicts, and it was hundreds of millions of dollars that the, the juries awarded the neighbors against Smithfield, and then, then naturally I think they came in and settled the rest because they would have lost every one of them. So that was kind of a, that, that, that's, that was kind of a, a, a positive feeling. Now, whether those neighbors have ever seen any of that money or not, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know how the legal system works. You know, I just, I just know it's, it's slow. But I think what you asked is important because the industry tries to say, oh, these are city folk and they moved to the country and this is our way of life and they just don't like it. And that's actually not the case. Uh, the majority of the times, they are intentionally siting these operations next to communities they know cannot protect themselves. And so they try to position it as you're just city folk and you don't understand our way of life. This is how, this is the smell of money. You know, this is how we make money. The way that the industry tries to position it is that you're attacking our way of life. This is the country. And that's just not the case. You know, mm-hmm. most states have right-to-farm laws. I guess all states probably have some sort of right-to-farm law, which started with good intentions. It was to, you know, temper urban sprawl from coming in on top of farms and then dictating to the farmers, you know, you, we don't like you combining in the middle of the night, which sometimes that's all you can do. And so that that made sense. But now the industry has totally flipped it, and that now they use that as a shield to where they can come in on top of people, existing communities. So... We had SRAP actually put out a film not that long ago. We it took a little spin on that. It was called Right to Harm, and that's but that's another story. So for a little background, right to farm laws essentially mean that that communities can't file nuisance lawsuits against these operations for the harms that they bring to the communities. And and what Craig is saying is that it started out with these good intentions to protect farmers from 
people coming in and complaining about things, but the industry took it and, and really took advantage of it and said, oh, okay, we're going to make it stronger. And now it's in every state, I believe. I think so. And you know, people are unable to, which was why the North Carolina verdicts were so important, because those were actually nuisance, nuisance cases that actually made it through. Is that part of what the film is about? Yes. Is about the people coming together and... I think people always call it the classic David versus Goliath, and people think of that kind of backwards because at the end of the day, David beat Goliath, and that's what happened here. The uh, the industry probably wasn't prepared for a lady like Elsie Herring, and uh, she just dug in and and uh, you know wrote it out for twenty. You know they just, they just they was hoping she would either just give up and quit or die or whatever. She didn't, and uh, so I think it, that's uh, just the, the triumph of the human spirit. I think is you know part of the film actually. Was she one of the people who who filed the suit? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think in our work we see um, we see wins in communities where they can actually stop a CAFO from coming in, or they can get um, you know say there's a landowner who's about to rent to somebody who wants to to build an operation there, and we can change that you know landowner's mind once we start to talk to him or the community can I should say not us, but I think you know communities can organize they can participate in that permitting process they do win. But those wins don't come very often. Craig knows this firsthand. There's lots of ways to try to fight these things. The water monitoring is another. All of these things are ways that we can try to get communities organized and moving forward and, and doing things to safeguard their families and their futures. But I think the wins don't come very often, and they look different. So one win can just be a community member realizing that they can use their voice and that they can they can participate in this process. They can go talk to their legislators. We've seen communities not very often, but communities can can get health ordinances written that might never mention the word CAFO, but can protect a community's health and well-being in ways that would hinder a CAFO from either coming in or polluting or harming them in some way. You know, there are some films out there that are really focused on the animal welfare and and want to really, like, shock people and horrify them about the way animals are treated because Mm -hmm. that—I think a lot of us have a really visceral response to that. It didn't seem to me that that's the focus of this film. Definitely not. And I think in our work at Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, we oftentimes don't talk specifically to the animal welfare issues. I'll tell you a little story. I was at the state house. I was going to testify in front of a committee about actually a bill that was being voted on by the agriculture committee in the state house. And I actually wrote a speech, went into a friend who's a legislator in the state house, and she read it before I went to go testify. And she's like, um, could you take out this one line about animal welfare? Because lawmakers don't care about that. And that was incredibly disheartening, <laughs> but real. And so I deleted the line about animal welfare because then they just think you're crazy radical mm-hmm. who is anti-animal agriculture, which is not the case. But I think um, the other thing is the industry really likes to paint. You know, we don't talk about it a lot. We are pro-rural communities. We are pro-people. I'll tell you that. Not just rural communities. We, we definitely work directly with rural communities on a daily basis, but we are pro-people, people knowing their rights, people knowing and understanding what the food system looks like, people understanding what the impact and the harms of the food system is going to be on their lives, on their futures, on their families. I'm not doing this to change the system in my life. I'm doing this to change the system in my great-grand-nieces' lives because their lives are going to be impacted in really ugly ways because of what's happening right now. And so the animal welfare aspect is ugly. I know that. 
And I almost didn't come to SRAP to work because I was terrified of thinking about pigs being stuck in cages all day long. But I don't think about pigs being stuck in cages all day long because we're we're working with communities and showing them the power that they have with their voices. And we're working with communities and showing them the power that they have to create change. So animal welfare is one aspect of many harms that occur because of this system. But we don't focus on that necessarily because that's the easy one for the industry to attack. So one question that occurs to me when we're talking about this and and when I've heard about these fights before of communities wanting to keep the capos out of their area is they're going to go somewhere. I'm not trying to say that this is nimbyism or anything. I don't think anyone wants this in their backyard. So I guess I'm just trying to think about a larger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. It is going to normally go somewhere. Every contract grower we try to take out of the system, Tyson's going to go find another one to sign on the dotted line. Craig is famous, I think, at this point for saying, if I knew then what I know now, I never would have signed that contract. So we're looking at how do we reach those growers before they get you know, the contract put in front of them. We actually see in our work in Nebraska, we just saw an operation where we beat it in one place, they went to another one, and they're going to put it in. We actually refer to it as whack-a-mole, mm-hmm. you know, because you can totally. you can beat it down in one place and it's going to pop up somewhere else. So that's why the Food and Farm Network is really important. That's why we have to get these community members engaging beyond what's happening in their backyards. And we have to do podcasts like this. We have to actually talk to people and educate them. We have to do the film screening to be able to make sure that people understand not only does your buying choice matter, what you buy at the grocery store or at the farmer's market or wherever you're going to get it, we have to make people understand there is a higher cost here to the food that you're eating, even if it's a cheap jug of milk or even if it's a cheap uh, piece of chicken and you think you're getting a really good deal there's a higher cost and it impacts us all regardless of where we live if we're urban or rural it impacts us all through our climate through our environment through all the things that we're seeing weather-wise through our public health through the antibiotics that are making their ways into the food I mean there are impacts in numerous ways which we call costs you know these are externalized costs that you might not see on the grocery bill but they're actually there. We're going to pay for it with our insurance later when we get cancer or we get some other health you know, problem that crop that crops up because of what we've the way we've been eating and growing food. That really leads to one of the other questions that I wanted to ask, which is, what do you think about the power of an individual response to factory farming? Like, and I'm mostly thinking about avoiding products, uh, avoiding the products, not eating meat. Um, or not eating meat that's produced in this manner. I think there's a lot of things that can happen. Certainly, if you don't want to eat meat or eat less meat or at least do one thing, which is buy your meat or your eggs from a farmer that you know, you know that you know how those products are raised, I would say if you can do that, that's wonderful. Please do it. There are other ways too, like using your voice, um, sending comments when when there's opportunities. Uh, we're trying to to enlist action alerts for communities who sign up on our website to be able to know when something's happening at the state house. To at least just write a comment about what you think. Participate in the process in some way. Policy is huge. We have to be able to get these farmers out of these situations. We have to be able to build the infrastructure so that farmers can actually have a market and access to a market to sell their products that are sustainably raised. And then we need consumers on the buying side to be able to support that market and advocate for more. So there's, you know, voting 
and and making sure that you know what you're voting for and the people that you're voting for and what they support is really really important. I certainly think that it would be uh, an individual should support a system they believe in. But we didn't get to this overnight, you know. The consumers certainly will play a point in it, but Sherry's right, the policy that we have now is totally geared up for this industrial operation, the soy, the corn, you know, the subsidized insurance. And I always just said it's like we're trying to fill a pail with a hole in the bottom of it. You know, it's, just, it's just never going to happen. It's time for a reboot. And I, I, I compare it to like the frog in the kettle, right? And the water's warming up. So I think we need to, you know, certainly change the way our our food system is before the water starts to boil, actually. So, uh, but, I, and I'm not promoting vegan or vegetarian because I'm neither. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to look at consuming less meat. I mean, you know, who needs to eat chicken three times a day, really? I mean, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that, that it's just the, those small things. But I, I just think the policy is such a such an issue that, uh, so we need to elect people that, you know, think in the manner that we think. Do you do any work around the farm bill? So certainly the farm bill, which comes up in 2023 again, I think that is certainly an opportunity to be able to to look at what we're subsidizing. So essentially what's happening is we're subsidizing the wrong types of agriculture on the front end. We eat this food that's heavily processed, that's that's raised in these conditions, that's not bad for the environment, not good for our health, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're paying into health insurance, you know, programs at the at the back end of our lives because of all the problems that crop up in our own health individually. And and so I think it's important to understand that, as I said, there's all these externalized costs, and it all starts with that farm bill. It all starts with you know this policy on a federal level and at a, a state and local level on what we're what we're setting forth as priority, what we think is important about what we're raising and what we're producing in this country, and then how we're regulating the operations that are doing it. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about, it might seem obvious to you, but what are some of the larger environmental costs of this kind of farming? If, if you're going to build a poultry processing plant, okay, you're going to have to have those houses to supply that plant, where they're not going to want to drive those trucks all over the United States of America. So they're going to put that within that 60-mile range. So you had this highly concentrated amounts of waste in this little, in this little you know, confined area because it's not really economical to truck it here and there. And if you want to look at any perfect example of what can happen, research the Chesapeake Bay. Up on the Delmarva, that's where the basically the broiler industry started. And, and it's, it's not all 100% agriculture runoff, but a lot of it is. And a lot of that is that, that over, uh, what you wind up doing is you wind up over applying nutrients. The crops can't take it up. It rains, it's going somewhere. Surface water, then eventually groundwater. And, and so they're seeing issues in the Bay. I mean, you see a lot of runoff issues even in the Gulf of Mexico where you have this huge dead spot. So, I, you know, certainly water, air, I mean, soil. I mean, there's there's heavy metals in, in that poultry manure. and we had to monitor that because if you get metal toxicity in your farm, it's like, it's a game over. So sooner or later, there's got to be some alternative use. What do you mean it. if you get metal toxicity? If you it's if game your over. if your metal levels get so high, it, crops will not grow. So your farm is absolutely useless. I think in Indiana, and I, I will, don't quote me on this, but you could look it up pretty easily. Indiana is around sixty percent of our water is unfit for recreation due to pollution. And I think also we were like number two in the country for polluted water from agriculture. 
I believe. So, you know, right there, I don't even know if you have to say anything more than that. You know, we used to probably all of us grew up playing in creeks and rivers and ditches and, you know, being able to kick our bare feet in water. And the fact that throughout our our state now, we can't even put our toe in the water, it's not safe, says a lot about what we've done and the damage that we've done from the system that supposedly is so great. I imagine that when people see this film, they're appalled and they want to take action. What kind of message do you try to leave folks with when they come to a screening like this? For me personally, I'm the executive director of an organization. I want them to engage with us. I want them to care. And I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, how do we show up in whatever way that makes sense, whatever way that's possible, whether that's calling a legislator, whether that's voting differently, whether that's purchasing something differently, whether that's just signing up for our newsletter so they can engage when it makes sense for them. Or just continuing to go to documentaries when they pop up. You know, I mean, I think it's there's all kinds of different ways that we can show up to this issue and make sure that we're we're speaking up on it, on the issues and, and really trying to support a better future for ourselves. I think when people see something like this, anybody that you educate for five minutes on how this industrial system actually works. You know, the industry has their narrative. They have their playbook. We feed in the world. This is a farmer's way of life. I can't remember. There's two or three more. But uh, that that narrative doesn't hold up anymore. They automatically lose. So public opinion, we can swing. We just But people have to take it one step further and do things like call legislators or, or, or you know, uh, we'll take volunteers with SRAP, I'm sure, if people want to uh, <laughs> want to join some fights in communities. So, uh, uh, yeah. One of the first gentlemen I talked to that was a community member that we, we got a win, and uh, I actually wasn't involved with it, but I, I, I was talking to him, and I said, well, what did y'all do? He said, everything. So that's the approach. And you flip every rock you can. Well, I thank you so much for doing this work. Thank you for yeah. having us on and talking about the issue. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming. I've been speaking with Craig Watts and Sherry Duggar, with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. Anybody who wants to stay in, in, in contact with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, please visit sraproject.org for more information. We'll have links to their work on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Whaley, reporters at Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Sherry Duggar, Craig Watts, everyone at Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, and the IU Food Institute. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.